This is the Championship Chat Podcast, your home of news, views and debate from England's second tier. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Championship Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Elliot Jackson, and I'm joined as always by George Smith. George, how are you? I'm not bad, mate. How's things with yourself? Yes, all good, thank you. Just about recovered from an exhilarating couple of nights of watching Championship playoff football. Absolutely breathtaking stuff and of course that is what we will be discussing on this podcast we'll also be going through a little bit of championship housekeeping with some manager movements and a couple of free transfers as well to discuss in the early weeks of the window but as always make sure you are subscribed to this podcast feed which you can find on all your usual platforms and make sure you're following us on twitter and instagram at champchatpod24 this is the championship chat podcast we're going to start our breakdown then, George, with the match last night, which was, as we record, on Wednesday afternoon between Nottingham Forest and Sheffield United. Uh, obviously, we didn't do any podcast um, reflecting on the first leg for either games, so we're just going to try and go through all of the, the madness as it was um, in this podcast and mainly focus on, obviously, the second leg because no one wants to talk about the first leg. It was It was a fair few days ago now, but it all wraps up into the narrative and what a what a game of football. Um, I have to say, in the first leg, I thought Nottingham Forest were brilliant and I thought they were by far the better team. I thought that they should have been... They, they could have been out of sight, really. They, 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 in that first half in particular at Bramall Lane, they absolutely battered Sheffield United on in, in the transitions in particular, but they dominated possession. And the pace of Brennan Johnson, um, the movement of Sam Surridge, more than so the pace, but... They just got in behind that Sheffield United backline so often, time and time again. And if they'd been a bit more ruthless in front of goal, they could have been three or four nil up. And I don't think that's an exaggeration. They could have left Bramall Lane with a three goal lead comfortably. Last night, however, again, the opening goal for Brennan Johnson, which puts them three one up, that lack of mobility and pace in that Sheffield United defence, which hasn't really been that much of an issue this season. But he really, really got exposed. Chris Basham, I have to say, and he's just signed a new two-year deal, funnily enough. It's the oldest I've seen him look. He looked really... It just struggled. And Sam Surridge isn't rapid. It's not Keenan Davis he was chasing after either. But the movement and the accuracy of the passes, it was Scott McKenna with the lovely ball in behind um, for Surridge, who then squared for Brennan Johnson to make it 1-0. I thought Sheffield United just really struggled. But I actually thought they played really well. They played so much better than they did at Bramall Lane. They kept the ball better. I thought they sustained attacks a lot better. They, they sort of pinned Forrest in a lot more and stopped those counter-attacks. Because Forrest still looked deadly, don't get me wrong, on the counter-attack. Brennan Johnson, brilliant. Zinc and Argos, Sturridge, that, that trio up front still caused problems on the counter-attack. But Forrest weren't as dominant in midfield. I thought Yates and Garner struggled, um, more so than in the first leg where they dominated. And Sheffield United played really well. And to get, you know, to have that belief from 1-0 down at half-time, 3-1 down on the tie, to get those goals. And the second goal in particular, uh, sorry, the equaliser even for, which was, no, yeah, the second goal that was turned in by, I was right first time, by Morgan Gibbs-White. Fantastic play from George Baldock, which I think they lacked in that first leg because they had Ben Osborne playing on the right, who is really a central midfielder, at at best a left wing-back. Not sure about him playing on the opposite side at right wing-back. I don't think it works. I think you can get away with, obviously, inverted wingers, but... I like wing-backs that play with their natural foot. You think someone like Jed Spence, and we saw the benefits of that with that Baldock run, that cross, and Gibbs-White tucking it in. 
and the, the equaliser was pretty similar, albeit with Sander Berg on this, uh, this occasion, cutting it back to John Fleck. For Sheffield United to get to that point, they did so, so well. And I thought it was the midfield that was the big difference because they sustained the attacks more in that second leg than they did in the first. Without a doubt, there was, it was chalk and cheese really, wasn't it? Let's be honest, obviously Forrest, as you said there, first half in particular at Bramall Lane on Saturday were, were pretty rampant really. They could have easily gone in at half-time, three or four nil up. Second half, United did step it up a little bit. They did improve, but still weren't overly convinced. And obviously, Forrest caught them cold with Joe Lolly pouncing. But Tuesday night in the second leg at the City Ground, the Blades came out and really they set the stall out from the very beginning, didn't they? They looked the more threatening in the opening 10, 15 minutes. They were trying to get on the ball and obviously Njai had the big chance where Samba denied him. And Forrest, to me, were a little bit sluggish. They were struggling to get going. I'm not sure... If anything, maybe they were a little bit nervous by the occasion because obviously they got the lead, the pressure was on them to retain that lead. And they they didn't look overly convincing to me, Forrest, on, on Tuesday night, but obviously they got the job done overall. But what a game it was, as you've said. It was, a, it was one of those games where you just couldn't take your eyes off it. As neutrals, it was, it was absolutely brilliant. Everything about it, the emotions of it, quality on show. And the Blades really... They could have quite easily won that game on Tuesday night and could be preparing for the playoff final now so easily. And had it not been for Bryce Samba, certainly um, denying Njai in the second half of extra time, I mean, what a save that was. It could have quite easily been United going to Wembley a week on Sunday. So they will feel very, very disappointed, the Blades. But I think ultimately they lost that game in the, the tie in the first leg, didn't they? In the first half in particular, they weren't at the races and go back to our predictions for the original, um, well, for the first leg. <laughs> we got those right, didn't they? We, we, did. we, both, we both backed the Blades, but I think we'd looked at that, obviously, by the form they'd been in at home, especially in recent months. Obviously, they'd batted Fulham 4-0 on the final day, and there was going to be a really good, raucous crowd there. And obviously, Forrest came, and they obviously pinched that early goal with Jack Colback, and it immediately just sucked the blood out of the home crowd and chucked everything in Forrest's favour. But... As I say, Tuesday night at the City Ground, the Blades, they played really, really well. You can't deny it. They were excellent. And obviously, they lost it on penalties, which of course comes down to a lottery. And ultimately, Nottingham Forest had a penalty saving supreme in Bryce Samba. We need to touch on Bryce Samba because it was a it was performance. His it was probably the best individual performance I've seen in the championship this season. Off, off top of my head. Now, I'm sure in an hour's time, I'll think of a better one. Don't get me wrong. But (laughs) it was that sort of... And it it wasn't just the penalty saves because I was actually... It's quite funny. I was watching the match with... uh, I watched the... I had it on my laptop while me and my uh, fiancé were watching general TV. And then we were about to... She was ready to go to bed. So we put the play... We put the actual penalties on the big TV and we were both watching them. And, um, you know, you could just... It was just one of those where... He just just did everything right. It, it was a, a performance of the ages. The save mm. in the second half to deny Illumin and Jai on the swivel is as good a save as I've seen. When you consider the pressure of that moment and you consider the magnitude of that save, you know, it was a massive save, obviously, early on to deny and Jai again in the at nil nil. But at three three on aggregate. To pull off that save from that close range, and Njai does nothing wrong. You could say yeah. with the first one he should score. I think. I think it's a good save by Samba, but Njai should score. Ultimately, if he had that time again, nine nine ninety nine times out of hundred, it goes in the back of the net with the contact he makes. What a save! And 
this is the interesting thing you get with a player like Bree Summer because there's been times this season where he's like discipline. You think the game against Derby um, at the City Ground where his antics were certainly, um, he's certainly trying to rile players up. Obviously, he got that massive egg on his head when he clashed with Tom Lawrence. You think to the Stoke game where he randomly sidewinds Sam Clucas, I think it was, and gets sent off. And he got dropped for a few games after that because it's that lack of composure and discipline that is a real problem. And he has made errors at times this season. I think he should have done better, for example, for the Sheffield United's late consolation goal at Bramall Lane where he sort of flaps at it and gets lost. And there was a couple of instances from set pieces before that where that happened. But the, the balance of that and what you get on the other hand is you get someone that is arrogant, and I mean that in a, in the best way possible, because you need that sort of, you know, grabbing the games by the balls, for want of a better word, um, to stand up in those big moments. And he just had every confidence in the world he was going to save those penalties. And those mind games and that level of arrogance and confidence, and again, I mean that in a positive manner, because especially as a goalkeeper, it's quite an individualist sport, as daft as that sounds. It's probably the position on the field where you are most in control of everything and you are not as reliant on your teammates to make a big save in a penalty shootout, for example. And as I said, the point I was making about watching it with my fiance, I sort of said to her, the goalkeepers in this scenario, that they can only be heroes. They can't really be villains because you are not expected to save a penalty kick ultimately. It is The onus is on the attacker to score. And he wanted to be the hero and he'd got the arrogance, the confidence, the self-belief. And it's that sort of character in those moments which is why you put up with the lack of, you know, a little bit of ill-discipline and the antics and the shithousery, for want of a better word, at times in the other games throughout the 46-game season because he won them that game last night. You know, we've waxed lyrical about Brennan Johnson, about Surridge recently, about Yates and Garner and McKenna and Worrell. He won that game for Nottingham Forest last night and he deserves the plaudits for that because unbelievable saves in normal time. The Njai save is match-winning. And then obviously that that just arrogance and confidence it just it just won them the penalty shootout ultimately. Without a doubt, you've summed up everything. I'm really pleased that you said the word character amongst all that because you can just tell by Bree Summer just looking at him and the way he talks and the smile and the grin that he plays with. He is a character. I can imagine him. Obviously, I don't know the ins and outs of the Forest camp. I can imagine him to be a really really lively figure in that dressing room, really jovial and like just basically certainly like, would have been last night. The one that everyone looks to for a laugh and like kind of the fall guy in the in the team. That's what I love to see. He was so, as you would be in that situation, he was so proud of what he'd achieved. The, the smile on his face and it was the way that he delayed as long as possible. Oli Norwood taking that first spot kick of the shootout. He waited and the waited. The metal waited. to stand still for the second one of Hurahan. Exactly. I was just going to come to that as well. And he reminded me, you, you talk about famous penalty shootouts and Everybody always thinks of his um, Jersey Dudek's antics in the 2005 Champions League final. That definitely ranks up there. All right, not as big a competition, but the the audacity and almost the cockiness of the man. I loved it. It was just, it just summed up everything. And what I think the important thing is now for Nottingham Forest is, obviously over the course of a season, whether they get to the Premier League or not, everybody's going to look at what took them to this playoff final. Everybody's going to talk about the, the goals of Brennan Johnson, the contributions of James Garner, Jed Spence flying down the wing. Bryce Samber is the man that has taken them to this final. In terms of needing a hero at that moment in time, if it wasn't for Bryce Samber, Nottingham Forest would not be going to this playoff final. And I don't just mean because of the shootout, the saves he made in normal time and extra time. 
The saves yeah. in, in extra time, no time, were more important than the shootout they for were. me. That, that one from Njai, I, I keep watching it. I cannot it, believe he saved it. It, it. it was match winning. Obviously, we were at a point, weren't we, where next goal wins, literally kids in the playground. There's one team's winning 9-0 and then suddenly kids shout, it's five minutes before the bell goes, next goal winner. And that's what that was. And Njai must be must have woke up on, on Wednesday morning as we record on Wednesday, be thinking, how did I not stick that away? But he couldn't have done anything more. So, full credit to Bree Samba. And I would imagine that Steve Cooper was certainly uh, handing in the drinks on, on Tuesday night because he, he was Forest match winner. He was their hero. And let's be honest, if uh, we go to a penalty shootout at Wembley a week on Sunday, let's see if he repeats the antics again. But it's only going to boost his confidence. For Sheffield United, I think they reached a level of performance I didn't think they got in them. And I think we need to keep reiterating the fact is they've got no strikers. You know, they Absolutely. are playing with a very makeshift forward line of Morgan Gibbs-White, Illiman and Jai, uh, and Sander Burge as the most advanced of those midfielders. It's interesting to me what happens to them in the summer because I they've got a wage bill they need to cut, ultimately. Every year you don't go up after parachute payments, you've got to cut your wage bill. I don't see lots and lots of sellable assets, if I'm being completely honest. I think when you look who's the most sellable assets, they've not had brilliant years. Sander Burge has been very good in the playoffs in recent weeks. Has he proven he's a twenty million pound footballer? No, not for me. I wouldn't be paying twenty million pounds. He's, for he's him. progressed in the say the last two or three months of the season, but I've not seen enough for him to to warrant a fee of, of that size. Definitely, he not. scored five goals in the championship season, and I think for someone of his perceived quality yeah, playing at championship level, he should be scoring double figures. Really, at championship level. And the other thing with that, you he know, has been injured. Is, I, yeah, I do want to obviously. Obviously. Caveat. The, the loss of Morgan Gibbs-White back to Wolves is going to be a huge low. He's been basically the, the architect of everything they've, they've done this season. But the thing with Sheffield United is that squad and the nucleus of it has been together now for a long, long time. And obviously, they're not getting any younger. You think about the names in there, obviously, John Fleck, Jack O'Connell, Chris Basham, Ender Stevens, George Baldock, Billy Sharp, Ollie Norwood. They were all part of that Chris Wilder revolution when they went on that magical journey a few years ago. So they are going to have to change things. Obviously, Conor Hurahan's going back as well um, from his loan spell. So there is going to be a big change. Obviously, they've already announced that McGoldrick's on his way out, Moose as well, and they are starting to show things. But I think it's quite a big summer for Sheffield United this summer because they've got to get things right. But at the same time, even though obviously they'll feel deflated after what happened on Tuesday night, they are on an upward curve at the minute. Paul Heckingbottom has has massively exceeded expectations. They were 16th when he went in. He brought the feel-good factor back, went back to what this team had been used to under Chris Wilder. And he has, without a doubt, overachieved from where they were, especially in the recent weeks where they played with literally no strikers. So he deserves credit and he deserves the opportunity now to try and take the squad forward with his, with his image and put his stamp on, on proceedings. But I do look at the loss of Morgan Gibbs-White and think... That is a really, really big blow because not impossible. You can't ever rule anything out in football, but I think it's very, very unlikely that he'll be returning to Bramall Lane next season after what he's produced this year. I don't know how they regenerate the squad, really, because when I look at someone like Bournemouth that went in their second year, obviously this season, they sold Dan Juma. When I look who Sheffield United's biggest sellable assets are, probably Rian Brewster, who's barely had a kick all season and has been injured. So his price, exactly, his valuation's plummeted. Oli McBurney was a £20 million footballer, hasn't scored a goal in 28 games this season. Uh, John Egan is now, he's a very good championship, he's probably good enough to play in the Premier League, but he's 31. 
who is going to pay the level of money that Sheffield United would want to get him out of Bramall Lane? He's got time left on his contract. Who would pay that money for a 31-year-old that Sheffield United would deem acceptable? I don't think there's many suitors out there because you can get a younger player for probably the same amount of money. You might have to pay eight to ten million pounds for John Egan. You could probably go and buy Jacob Greaves for that. Who's twenty? Twenty-one. I think so. I don't know where that market is, so I don't know how they are going to regenerate. We we know they've got no money at the minute. Really, they're they're looking to sell the club. The owners have said the appointment of Paul Heckenbott was very much to bring through the young players and and try and build that way. So the only way they're going to be able to generate revenue to use in terms of the playing budget is through sales. And I don't, they don't have that one player they could just sell and cash in on and try and then spread the money other than Sander Burge. But they might have to take a hit on that £20 million valuation because I don't see who would pay it. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I also think when you look at it, I think potentially there could be a few a few suitors for Njai this summer. He's, he's looked quite lively this season. He's looked quite promising. Even though I think personally, I think he'd benefit from another season at United and playing regular football. But you are I right. think it's too soon for him. I don't mean any disrespect to the to the likes of John Fleck and and Ollie Norwood and those sort of players, Billy Sharp. But one, they're not getting any younger now, and obviously they've all served Sheffield United very very well in recent years. There's no doubt about that. But when you compare them to Nottingham Forest, for instance, obviously having played them, it's it's a good example to show. You think about the flair players that Forest have got, like your Brennan Johnsons, your Dead Spence, bit of pace, bit of trickery. Who really fits that vision for United without Morgan Gibbs White? So I think for them this summer, it's about finding that creativeness, that energy, that younger legs basically. That is what they need. Mm. Because a lot of United's play obviously is centered around the central midfielders. And obviously Fleck scored on, on Tuesday night, so you can't do him a disservice there. And he's been a fabulous servant for Sheffield United. But they need younger legs, they need fresh energy. And I'm sure it's something Paul Heckingbottom's talked about, and I'm sure it's what they'll be planning for. But like you said there, Bournemouth obviously have the likes of Dan Juma to sell. United have got Sander Berger and he's not going to attract the fee that they would have wanted for, say, 12 months ago. The same with Rian Brewster as well, who struggled throughout the season. And with respect, even though I still think Rian Brewster has got a lot to show and a lot to prove, I do think there is a good player in there. He has not displayed the quality this season to command a big transfer fee. It's as simple as that. I completely agree. Um, and that will be interesting to see what Sheffield United do. We shouldn't. I, I feel like all these doubts, and I had these doubts going first leg, and then they produce a performance like that. So, That's the thing, not downbeat. They, they just keep overperforming my expectations because of the squad and the limitations and the age of the squad. And I'm always going to come back to how long can they do that ultimately because they are exceeding for what, you know, the long term worries that we've just sort of leveled out there. They are not going to go away and they can keep defying them for so long and they've defied them for the last six months. But eventually, I do think they'll catch up with them. So I'm intrigued to see. Maybe they could get taken over in the summer. You know, they are definitely open to offers. If they get taken over, it's a different project. So it'll be very interesting to see how they do next season. Nottingham Forest, of course, go into the final. And that's going to be really exciting for them. On to the second playoff. Or, well, it was the first, really. We've gone backwards in terms of chronological order. Um, Luton Town, of course, losing out 2-1 on aggregate to Huddersfield Town, who are in the final. It's the final we both predicted. We both thought Forest would edge out Sheffield United and we both thought Huddersfield Town would edge out Luton Town. So it's it's gone the way we thought in terms of the overall winners. Two incredibly tight games. And again, another goalkeeping performance from Lee Nichols, where in that first, definitely 35 minutes or so of that first half, some massive, massive saves when Huddersfield Town were really on the ropes. And 
I thought that Luton were the best team in the first half at Kenilworth Road after the first sort of 15 minutes. Huddersfield started well, were certainly counter-attacking very well and using the spaces in between the... Uh, Dan Elson in particular was picking up those sort of spaces in between the the back three, in between you know two of the centre halves in the in the wide channels really well. Daniel Ward the same, but after that I thought Luton really came into it, and then second half I thought for, uh, thought Huddersfield took the sting out of the game and did did well second half and got a bit more of a foothold, and then it was kind of the sort of same story where Luton just came flying out the blocks. Nathan Jones, you can imagine, they've revved him up in the in the changing rooms, got them up for it. And they had some really big chances. There was a really big save from Nichols from close range in particular. Uh, was it Danny Hilton, I think, who had the effort? I'm trying to remember. There were some, some really good chances and Nichols pulled off some really good saves. And that, for me, illustrated again why he is gonna, he's championship goalkeeper of the season for me, without a shadow of a doubt. He's been magnificent. And Luton really chucked everything at it, but it was just that clinical finishing, not having their first-choice striker in Adebayo for, for either leg. You know, he came on with three minutes to go with the, after they conceded, so... He wasn't involved at all over 180 minutes. And that that's what ultimately separated these two ta- two teams, really, wasn't it? It was. It was a close-run battle, I thought, over the course of the two legs, to be fair. I thought Huddersfield obviously came out very, very quickly at Kenilworth Road in the first leg, obviously got their goal through Sinani. Uh, and then obviously Luton paid them back from a set play with Bradley's goal. Monday night, Luton came out the stronger side and... Certainly, I think for the for the full duration of the first half, they were by far the superior team and they looked really threatening every time they went forward. And obviously, Lee Nichols proved his weight in goal. The second half, I thought Huddersfield stepped it up, but I didn't think they ever reached the levels that Luton did in the first half. So I think overall, really, in terms of the second legs, not talking about the overall ties, just the second legs, the two sides that were probably better in those two games are the ones whose seasons are now over. He's really worked in a strange sort of way. But Huddersfield, they did step it up after half-time. They did did improve, but they weren't at their fluent best. And it was a set-piece that found the way. And obviously a brilliant delivery from Sorba Thomas and Jordan Rhodes rolled back the years to find himself in the right place at the right time with a striker's finish. So I think over the course of the two legs, Huddersfield probably did deserve it. I thought there was an element of professionalism about their performance at Kenilworth Road, obviously. I think they would have taken a draw from that game, Huddersfield, without a doubt, to take back to the John Smiths. And then at the end of the day, they found a way, didn't they? And I predicted a 1-0 win in our predictions for the second leg. I really thought it would be a tight, tight game. And so it proved. But Huddersfield, I mean, either Huddersfield or Luton in this situation, it would have been a, a fairy tale to have reached Wembley. So for Huddersfield, it's, it's unbelievable. And I, I have actually looked since that game of the night at my uh, original league tail prediction, I had Huddersfield to finish 21st this season. 20- I think I did as well, to be fair. Certainly not far so above it. I had them to finish one place above the drop zone and they finished one place outside the automatic. So, proves how much I know. So, Huddersfield fans, I do apologise, but you've been terrific this season. And Carlos Corberan, Elliot, I noticed you put on Twitter the other night, manager of the season, hands down above above Steve Cooper. And yep. I fully agree. I fully agree. I've been banging that drum for, for a couple of months now, really. I know, obviously, Steve Cooper dragged Forrest from the bottom of the table to, to obviously, the, the playoff final. But I think, obviously, you went in there with a far better squad to work with. Don't mean any disrespect to Huddersfield, but Carlos Corberan, he, he has worked wonders with that team. And really, like I said only a few weeks ago, when you consider Huddersfield's team, except for probably Sorba Thomas and probably Lewis O'Brien, They've not really got any technically wonderfully gifted players that you would consider as top-end championship players. 
And I was actually thinking in my head last night after the game about combining a Forest and Huddersfield eleven for the playoff final. Like who would get in a team from both clubs? And I was only able to name two Huddersfield players in there, which is is quite telling, really. But they've been remarkable. They deserve this opportunity. And the stat that I worked out the other night, three defeats in 31 games in all competitions since November. Three defeats in 31. That is absolutely unbelievable. And one of those was to Nottingham Forest. I think the difference for me that ultimately won this game was the substitutes and the injuries that have been obviously well documented for Luton Town. They didn't have that depth of squad. And I think Huddersfield bringing on Sober Thomas, it injected some pace and some energy, and it got them up the pitch when Luton were really starting to knock on the door. And I actually, you know, obviously he sets up the, the winning goal, which is a big talking point and would easily make you go, he made the difference. But it was actually not anything to do with the goal, but just his general play once he came on. He played, obviously, more up front in that supporting role next to gave Jordan the, Rhodes as it was the spark, then. didn't he? He did. He gave them that injection of pace to get up the pitch. Someone who could run at Luton. And all of a sudden, if... If you've got everyone in a team that wants to come to feet, as Huddersfield invariably were a little bit like that with the personnel they got on the pitch with Sonani and Rhodes, they didn't have Ward running in behind. They didn't have, obviously, Thomas on the pitch. Pippa can do that if he's in advanced areas. But if everyone comes to feet, you as a opposition, as Luton Town, are going to press right up against them and box them in because you're not scared about what's in behind you. Once Thomas came on, all of a sudden they had to drop off a little bit because they were scared of Thomas running behind them. And that naturally then gives space to you. Lewis O'Brien to John Russell, uh, Jonathan Hogg when he came into the midfield areas. They've got more time on the ball. They've suddenly got more space and they've got runners. And that made a big difference to me in getting them up the pitch. So I thought that was the crucial moment. And obviously, Luton didn't have those sort of game-changing options because of the injuries. Adebayo clearly not fit or he wouldn't have played just like two minutes off the, off, at the end. But set-pieces, Huddersfield have been brilliant at them this season. I think they've scored certainly in the top two or three highest-scoring teams from set-pieces this season. They've defended them really well. Um, another clean sheet for that back line. And it's going to be a fantastic game at, at Wembley. It really is. Obviously, we're, we're going to. The plan is to do a, a big preview pod next week uh, with a couple of guests where we'll go into the final and where it might be won and lost in, in detail. But I thought Huddersfield were really good value. And I think that the introduction of Thomas ultimately was the, the difference and the deciding factor. And a very, very good poacher's effort from Jordan Rhodes. Yeah, right place, right time, and rolled back the years, didn't he? Just it, it was what he does. It, obviously, he went through that spell after obviously leaving Blackburn, Middlesbrough, and Sheffield Wednesday, where he lost his mojo. Wasn't scoring goals as frequently as we'd been used to, but obviously at Huddersfield, even though he's he's not scored many at all this season, he has come up with important goals. Obviously, that fantastic one at Middlesbrough, in that two 0 win, and then obviously on on Monday night to to send them to Wembley. So he's still got his uses. He's still got his ability to score goals and the, the, the fact of the matter is he's not going to run the channels. He's not going to show lightning pace and skill and be the most sexy and silky footballer in the world. But he will score goals if you give him the right service. He is a fox in the box. So he's done what Carlos Corberan sent him on to do. And obviously it's taken them to Wembley. And a word on Jordan Rhodes as well, of course, 200th career goal for him in, in club football. Marvellous achievement. I just want to switch this now to the other side of this tie and look at Luton and just say, even though obviously they'll probably still feel quite numb from that defeat on, on Monday night, what a season they've had. Absolutely remarkable achievement. And I just want to go back through... Do you think they can the, go again next season? 
with the right recruitment, or do you think I it's think one of these where they've they've overachieved so much that this was the chance? chance? I think they've got an equal opportunity, and as I said, only maybe last week or the week before, I think there is going to be several clubs who will fancy their chances of competing for the playoffs next season. I think obviously I mentioned Coventry, Stoke will be looking to kick on QPR, Preston in a first full season under Ryan Lowe, but Luton, I think. They've got an ideal chance and they'll be looking to kick on and continue what they've done because this is just remarkable, this statistic. Since 2015-16, they've finished 11th in League 2, 4th in League 2, 2nd in League 2, 1st in League 1, 19th in the Championship, 12th in the Championship, 6th in the Championship. It's continued growth, so they are building year on year on year. Obviously... There's a little bit of pressure there to keep that trend going for next season. We've got to finish fifth or above. But they're heading in the right direction of, as a football club. And yeah, they will have been disappointed with obviously how the playoffs ended up. But let's be honest, would a Luton Town supporter would have thought they'd be two games away from the playoff final back in back in August? Very, very unlikely. But the same should be said for Huddersfield as well. So whoever was going to come out on top in that tie was going to have drastically overachieved. But they'd earned the right to play for it. That, that's the secret. Luton had earned the right. They finished sixth in the league. They were the sixth best team. They've had some really good results. And potentially, had they had, had a bio fit and a couple of others, could it have worked out differently? Perhaps. We'll never know. But a remarkable season. And Nathan Jones should be immensely proud of his players and himself as well. They've, they've done really, really well. This is the Championship Chat Podcast. A little bit of housekeeping in the Championship uh, over the last week, which we're going to go through. Uh, to round off the podcast this week and most dominating story by far is Watford of course appointing Rob Edwards from Forest Green Rovers after they they took uh, after he took the side to the League 2 title this season his first senior management role um, he's been poached by Watford who of course have already been relegated from the Premier League and will play out their final game under Roy Hodgson this coming weekend Interesting one, this, George, from a lot of angles, because I think it's an appointment that on paper we like and it makes sense for Rob Edwards to obviously make that jump. Yes, there's been some controversy of the way it's it's been handled, but ultimately a management a manager's lifespan is short. I don't blame him for making that jump. And I don't subscribe necessarily to the belief that these jobs will always be there because I think the discourse and the way we view managers changes very quickly based on a few months and the way they perform. So if he'd gone in and obviously Forest Green Rovers lost Ebu Adams and Kane Wilson's going to go as well. If they'd then struggled at League One level, not had made a great start, I'm not sure how many managers would have been, how many clubs would have been knocking on the door. So I don't really blame him. Maybe it could have been handled differently, but that's not really for what we're focusing on on this podcast. We're more interested in the football side of things. Plays a very attractive brand of football. Um, Forest Green Rovers absolutely wiped the floor with League Two, particularly up until about March, when it was pretty much guaranteed they would go up no matter what. And then there was a wobble that that you know they did fall off um, out of form, probably mid-table form from March to the end of the season, if we're being honest. But nonetheless, they got themselves into that position and on the final day of the season won the League Two title ahead of Exeter City, who had a very good season as well. It's interesting for me this one because, as I say, I like the appointment. But is a leopard going to change its spots? That is ultimately the the question we've got to ask because Watford, hire and fire approach, everyone's entitled to their opinions. And up until two seasons ago when they were relegated from the Premier League for the first time in five years or so, it had worked to a certain extent. 
I think I've made it pretty clear on this podcast. I don't like that model. If it was my club, I wouldn't like it. That's my personal opinion. I'm entitled to that. So are Watford fans if they're more comfortable with it. But I don't like this hire and fire scattergun approach. And this is the first time they've really gone for a young up-and-coming manager when you think of the recent people. Obviously, this season in the Premier League, Roy Hodgson, Claudio Ranieri, Cisco Munoz, who took them up, uh, Ivic before that. They've had plenty of... Of, they've had a, an array of managers, but they've not really gone and plucked someone from lower league. And if they are going to give, if they're going to do that, they've got to give this a go. Now I don't know what the expectations will be for Watford, but from the outside looking in, this isn't an easy job. It looks like a fractured squad, where the likes of Emmanuel Dennis, Josh King, Danny Rose, Moussa Soko, those experienced players, and those who have been the better performers in the in the uh, Premier League, Ismail Assar potentially, they're going to go. So you've got to give him the resources to bring through some of these young players because they're going to need a new goalkeeper. Ben Foster's leaving. The defence could probably do with a bit of a, a rebrand. Certainly central midfield, people like Cleverly. Sissoko's going to go. They're not getting any younger either, if, even if they do stick around. They're going to need some dynamism in central midfield. And João Pedro aside, Ismail Assar's probably going to leave. Ken Semmer's not really kicked a ball for 12 months in the Premier League, although he's very good at championship level. Where does Domingos Kina come back in after his loans with Fulham and, and Barnsley? I don't know what the squad's really going to look like. I hope that if we're sat at the start of October and Watford are in seventh, just outside the playoffs, it's not a disastrous start, they don't pull the trigger. Because that there's no point in doing this if you're going to have that sort of approach. I think, sure, if they're 15th in the table, different story. But I just hope that by committing to this project, Watford are going to show us a, that they can be patient that they can invest in young managers and they can give them the opportunity to flourish because he's going to need that time at Vicarage Road. It is not a plug-in and win promotion sort of job and squad at the minute. There's going to need to be change and a bit of upheaval in the summer and Robert was deserves the time. To- yeah, I totally agree. I totally, totally agree. I mean, Watford, it's a good a time as any, isn't it, to declare this reset of the squad with a new manager coming in, but I do like what they've done. I must admit, I do like it. It's it's a bit of a gamble. It is a gamble. But what manager manager appointment isn't? He obviously from the from the depths of League Two to a club that has obviously got aspirations next season to bounce straight back to the Premier League is is a big big jump, and it is a big jump, and he's got to quickly adapt to that because obviously the the expectation level is going to be so so different, and the caliber of players, the character of players as well, and the mentality is going to be very different. So. He's going to be a huge job for Rob Edwards, but he's earned the chance, I think. And Watford, to me, are changing their ways. Obviously, it's been a long, long time since they went for a, a young manager, a young up-and-coming, when you consider what they've done in the past. Obviously, Nigel Pearson not that long ago, Claudio Ranieri this season, Roy Hodgson this season. It's the complete other end of the scale. So I hope it is going to be one that is a long-term appointment. They need some stability at this football club desperately, but we know it's not, it's not the Watford model unless they've looked at how disastrous this season has been in the Premier League and thought we need to change our ways for the greater good of the club and the long-term goal, which is to get to the Premier League and stabilise there. But when you look at the the numbers, and I've just very, very quickly counted, Watford now, including caretaker managers and obviously a couple of managers such as Kike Sanchez-Flores that have had two goes in the job, this is the 20th time that they've changed manager since 2010. 20th time. That is absolutely ludicrous. It's 12 years and there were 20 different manager changes. 
it's it's balmy if anything, but I think it is a change for the better. Certainly looks that way on, on paper when you look at it that they are going to be changing their model and thinking right. We need to settle down now. We've tried a couple of really experienced old heads this season in, in Ranieri and Hodgson. Obviously, the Premier League is a different kettle of fish to the Championship, but I think Rob Edwards has earned the opportunity to go in there and, and have a crack. And like you said, if they're not top of the league, 10 points clear by October, November, don't sack him. You need some stability. The squad is likely going to see a big upheaval this summer. And what I'd like, what I'd like to see from Watford, even though obviously it's not strictly the Watford business model, I'd like to see them kind of looking at players in this country opposed to scanning abroad because they bring so many players in from abroad. And I'll be honest with you, I've just looked at the Watford squad and half of them I've never even heard of. It it really is quite remarkable, the amount of foreigners they've got. Busy summer for you then. From unknown countries that are not obviously big in European football. I mean, I'm just looking at some of the names on the list now and I'm thinking, who, who the hell is he? So I'm going to brush up on my Watford knowledge over the summer, but the chances are this squad that's currently in place now could be ripped to bits by, uh, by July, August time. So that's what I think. I think it's time that they invest in some homegrown talent Scour the leagues. We know for a fact this players in the championship in championship league one, league two that are capable of of performing to a high level. And I think Rob Edwards, obviously from past experience of knowing the English leagues, will will potentially want to do that. But the most important part of this appointment is thinking from the board level at Watford. Have they changed their ways? The appointment suggests so. It really does by going for this sort of manager and not some unknown quantity from abroad or a big name that's done well in the past but he's coming towards the end of his managerial career so time will tell but I'm sure Rob Edwards has uh, has already prepared himself for the inevitable statement coming out if things aren't going well because their record of hiring and firing managers is, is quite frankly absolutely ridiculous and there's no other club like it that goes through them and as I said 20 different managerial appointments since 2010 20 that is it's obscene isn't it Salford are having a good go. They're going to be the, that's the not, Watford that's not of League show, Two. To be fair, Gary Bowie Watford, just gone. Watford of League Two. Yeah, well, Rob Edwards is used to League Two, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of uh, a couple of free transfers just to quickly touch on that have gone through. Mark Sykes from Oxford. He's joined Bristol City on a free transfer. Tenacious midfielder, um, capable of of scoring goals, but probably hasn't got as many as he should from from reading some comments from Oxford fans, but. A good age, and obviously there's a little bit of history there with uh, Bristol City signing um, Rob Atkinson, of course, last summer from Oxford um, on a, on a decent uh, sum of money. And then the other is Abu Adams, who we've just touched on then uh, with Forest Green Rovers. He's left on a free transfer to join Cardiff City. Big summer coming up for Cardiff, and by all means, they're being quite proactive from the noises I'm hearing on the, the recruitment front. Um they need to sort out the retain list still. They want to keep Joe Rawls. He's someone they're still waiting on an answer back for. They've offered a new salary, uh, a new contract to him on a decent salary. They want to keep him. People like Smithies are going. Morrison, I think they've offered terms to, but potentially reduced terms. So we'll see if he accepts that. It's a big summer. They need to inject some dynamism into that squad. And Ebu Adams has the profile and the fit of someone that could definitely do that. Obviously, it's a big jump from League Two into the into the Championship physically. I think he dominated people a lot in League Two and that is something that obviously will be more of an equaliser in the Championship. So it'll be interesting to see if Steve Morris can develop those technical skills which are more likely to help him stand out. But just you know, looking at the base of it and assigning on paper, 
more energy, more dynamism, someone that's quite a good ball carrier that can get them up the field and, and drive through midfield. It fits a, certainly a hole in their squad and gives them a bit more um, bit more dynamism, as I say, in that centre of the park. Yeah, I totally agree. Cardiff, big summer for them. They obviously massively under underachieved this time around and obviously they need some stability and obviously Steve Morrison has got his first crack at a full summer in charge. So he'll want to put his stamp on things and kind of set a template for what he wants to do and map out a, a vision for both the short term and the long term as well. And I think in the signing of Ebo Adams, it's a, it's a first step in the right direction. It kind of shows what they're wanting to do and I think the time has come where obviously people need to realise that there is a hell of a lot of talent in League One and League Two that is very much capable of stepping up to the plate at championship level. And one example, quite simply, is Brennan Johnson. He was playing in League One last season on loan at Lincoln City and and look what he's produced this time around. So League One, League Two, it's littered with good players. It really is. And people look at it and think, oh, League Two, it's, it's a bit of a jump to the championship, but there's been there's been a lot of times where players have proved it, and one player that I do think could uh, certainly be in, in with a move to the championship this summer is Scott Twine from MK Dons. I think he's a lot of he's a player that a lot of clubs should be paying very close attention to, and they probably are. So that's what I mean. If you sign a player from League One or League Two, don't don't automatically turn your nose up at it because there is a lot of good talent in the lower leagues these days. Absolutely. Uh, And that marks the end of this week's episode of the Championship Chat Podcast. If you do enjoy the podcast, please make sure you subscribe in your usual podcast app and make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at ChampChatPod24. As I said, we'll be back early next week with a a bumper breakdown of the Championship Playoff Final, which is coming to you next weekend. So keep an eye out for that. Make sure you're subscribed in your podcast app and that will drop us soon as it goes live. So we will have a a big detailed preview of the final itself. Forest v Huddersfield in what is bound to be a cracking game at Wembley. Make sure you share the podcast to help us reach new listeners as soon as everyone goes live. And you can support this podcast with our Ko-Fi page, contributing the cost of a cup of coffee towards our monthly overheads on a one-off basis. The link to donate, if you do feel so inclined, is in our podcast description. Have a great week and we'll catch you again very soon for a detailed breakdown of the championship playoff final. This is the Championship Chat Podcast, your home of news, views and debate from England's second tier.